Good evening. I want to bring something to your attention. This book we put on the slide uh, this morning through announcements, you, you may have seen it. This book is called One Word. It is a devotional book that we are going to be going through next year here at Oldham Lane. What you'll see in the book is there is a word for each week of the year. For instance, if the word is sin, then there will be five devotionals, Monday through Friday, on the word sin. So this is something that we are encouraging all of you to get. It's $3. You can find it at onewordstudy.com. Thank you. And uh, the, the cost just covers you know, the, the materials it takes to, to publish it, to make it. And so I hope that you'll pick this up. What we're going to do next year is every Sunday morning, we're going to take that word and the sermon will be on that word. Now, we're not going to mirror what's written in the book, so it won't be just a carbon copy of what you're reading through the week, but it will be some sort of take on the word that you've been studying Monday through Friday. So I hope that you'll get the book that we can engage together throughout the year next year. Uh, actually, some of our Bible classes are going to do the study as well. Our summer series is going to revolve around this theme. The idea, as I said, one word, taking one word each week and, and looking at that word and what it means for us as Christians. So hopefully you'll pick that up. We'll be advertising this again as we go along. <coughs> Excuse me. We're starting a series on Sunday nights that may be a little uncomfortable. I know it has been for me, but hopefully we can come to some resolutions and some convictions uh, about some things that we would consider to be elephants in the church. You've heard the phrase probably elephant in the room. This is an idiomatic expression referring to a problem or an issue that everyone would rather ignore, but it still sits there and nobody pays any attention to it because they're afraid that it might ignite some controversy or by opening that can of worms, somebody's gonna get upset. You know, I think one of our reasons for avoiding certain issues or topics is because they make us uncomfortable. Or maybe we feel like we've already come to a conclusion and we don't want to hear anything different. Somebody brings up something uh, that's questioning our view on a certain issue or topic, and we almost get a little defensive and we think, what are you trying to do, stir strife? Are you trying to be liberal? What, what's the problem? And I think it's good that we examine some of these issues. I mean... If the world around us is talking about some of these things, then why are we allowing them to be the only ones talking about these things? And so in this series, we're going to look at transgenderism, homosexuality, racism, politics, a lot of different things that hopefully we can come to a conclusion about and maybe see in the proper light. I've never been big on avoiding elephants in the room. I just think we need to be open and honest and I think we need to look at these things from a biblical perspective and try to reach some sort of conclusion that helps us to understand it and to apply it to our lives. What happens all too often, I think, in the church is that we avoid these things because we don't really want to have that discussion, and I don't think that that's healthy. But here's something else that I think is good for us. I think it's good to talk about these things, to bring it to light, so that when someone else is talking about it in the world, we're able to maybe shed some scripture or a biblical maybe aspect on the topic. But we've got to be careful. When it comes to certain topics, we kind of do what the Pharisees did, and they had a good reason for doing what they did. We kind of build these hedge laws or these fence laws, 
we think that something is a bad behavior. And so in order to avoid that behavior or the presence, even the appearance of that behavior, we build these fence laws or these, these hedge laws so that we don't even get anywhere close to it. Remember, the Pharisees did that a lot. But they did it to the point where it became just ridiculous. For instance, not working on the Sabbath. You realize they had so many laws that would constitute work on the Sabbath. You couldn't even look in a mirror because you might find a gray hair and you'd be tempted to pluck it. And if you plucked a gray hair on the Sabbath, well, that was work and therefore that was sinful. And so it, it became really ridiculous and nonsensical. And I think sometimes we've done that in the church over the years. For instance, we say all dancing's wrong. All dancing's not wrong. The Bible presents dancing in a positive light. But we also know that there is some dancing that's lewd. We also know that there are some places where dancing takes place that, you know, a Christian probably has no reason to be there. I mean, so there is a sense in which dancing can be wrong, but we can't say, based on Scripture, that all dancing is wrong. You remember when, you know, people used to say, rock and roll music's from the devil, right? That's the devil's music. Well, I mean, I, I think we can look at that a little closer and see not, not all rock and roll music is from the devil, right? I mean, some of it's bad. We shouldn't listen to it, right? And there's other things like that. And drinking is, is one of those issues that, that maybe we haven't approached the way that we should because it's uncomfortable. You know, we live in a culture now that, that celebrates drinking and social drinking. And maybe we don't know where we stand or perhaps we've just not wanted to bring it up because is it really a salvation issue? You know, we don't know. And so we have these ideas, these questions, the, all these things surrounding it and Sometimes we draw a hard and fast rule and we say that, you know, there's no drinking in the Bible. Anytime you see alcohol mentioned in the Bible, every time you see the word wine mentioned in the Bible, it was alcoholic. Some people say every time you see wine mentioned in the Bible, it was always grape juice, it was non-alcoholic. We hear all kinds of, of, of arguments and, and, and debates about whether, you know, drinking is, is the sin or is it just drunkenness. What is right, what is wrong. I think it becomes an elephant in the room, and we don't really know how to approach the topic. But I think we need to. And I think it's important for us to, to land somewhere on this rather difficult topic. There's a couple of things that we must get out of the way. There are some misconceptions that we have to, to wipe clean. Some things that we need to clear up. First and foremost is not all wine is the same. When you see wine in Scripture... It's not all the same. Now, this is not Chris's opinion. This is fact, okay? There are some very sincere Christians who would claim that any mention of wine in the Bible is always referring to grape juice. That is false. That is not true. Noah got drunk, okay? But then there are some people who are very sincere who would say every time wine is mentioned in the Bible, it is referring to alcoholic wine and that's not true either in psalm 104 in verse 15 wine is said to make a man's heart glad in habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 15 it states woe to you who make your neighbor drink who mix in your venom even to make them drunk in john chapter 2 verses 1 through 11 this is the first miracle performed by jesus that we have recorded it's the wedding feast at Cana. And we see that partaking of wine is obviously sanctioned, but 
In Proverbs 4 and 17, it's condemned. In the book of Judges, chapter 9 and verse 13, wine is said to bring cheer. However, in Proverbs 20 and verse 1, it is said to be a mocker. Wine is viewed as a blessing in Joel chapter 3 and verse 18, but in Psalm 60 and verse 3, it is connected with divine hardship. So what does this tell us about wine in the Bible? Well, what it tells us is that most of the time, you have to consider the context. The context is going to determine whether we're talking about unfermented or fermented wine, whether we're talking about the alcoholic kind or the non-alcoholic kind, right? But what this also tells us is that we cannot say that every time we read the word wine in Scripture, it is referring to what we think of as wine today. It's just not the case. Here's another misconception that needs to be trashed. It's the argument that ancient people had no way of preventing fermentation. So everyone was walking around slobber-faced drunk because they had no other option. That's not true. People living in Bible times employed methods to prevent fermentation. They utilized boiling, filtration, sulfur fumigation, air exclusion, and temperature reduction, just to name a few. The contention that the ancients drank intoxicating wine exclusively because they had no choice is simply not true. History tells us that wine was often greatly diluted before consumption. Some ancient Greek writers mentioned that there were 20 parts water to one part wine. Others mention a ratio of 8 to 1. But the most common ratio was somewhere around 2 or 3 to 1. And we know that the Bible makes a distinction between wine that is simply called wine and wine that is strong drink. In Leviticus 10, 8 and 9, we read these words. The Lord then spoke to Aaron saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting so that you will not die. Concerning the Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6 and verse 3, it states, He shall abstain from wine and strong drink. Now, incidentally, the Nazarite vow was so strict that it forbid a person to even touch the peel of a grape. In 1901, Jewish Encyclopedia states that in the rabbinic period, wine was known as yayin and was to be distinguished from shekar, or strong drink. Yayin was diluted with water while shekar was unmixed. And in the Jewish Talmud, which contains the oral traditions of Judaism from about 200 B.C. to A.D. 200, there are several tractates concerning the mixture of water and wine, and one tractate states that wine that does not carry three parts water to one part wine is not wine. So the point is this. Drunkenness was actually a disgrace to the people of this time. They weren't walking around slobber-faced drunk because they had no other options. It's often argued that the consumption of alcoholic beverages is okay because Jesus turned water to wine. Maybe you've heard that argument. Someone is drinking, it's okay to drink because Jesus turned water to wine. Now, I don't know what Jesus turning water to wine says about the person who downs a six-pack of Bud Light. I don't know how those two go together. I think those are not really apples and oranges, uh, or apples to apples. I think it's more of an apples to oranges comparison. But anyway, to argue that Jesus changing water to wine justifies even social drinking is completely erroneous because this statement assumes the very thing that must be proven. I think this is an important question to ask. If Jesus made intoxicating wine, then wouldn't Jesus have been guilty of sin? 
Many will point to the statement made by the master of the feast who stated, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have, served, you have saved, I should say, the best till now. That's John 2 and 10. You know, I've heard it argued that everyone at the feast was already drunk to the point that they could not discern whether the wine was good or not. And if that's true, then that would imply that Jesus was providing more alcohol to people who were already intoxicated. In fact, he would have provided 120 to 130 gallons of intoxicating wine to people who were already drunk. This would be a direct violation of Scripture. Paul wrote, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Would Jesus have been an accomplice to people being drunk or getting drunker? Also remember the passage we referred to a moment ago in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 15. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. The NIV states it this way. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that they can gaze on their naked bodies. If Jesus was creating the opportunity for folks to get drunk or even drunker, then he was doing the very thing that is condemned elsewhere in the Bible. It's also assumed that in John chapter 2 and verse 10, that the new wine that is mentioned there, the good wine, was the intoxicating kind. That's an assumption that is made that is erroneous. Many folks have drawn the conclusion that it was be, because it was a higher quality, it must have been alcoholic, while the former would have been dull or watered down. But consider that in antiquity, the better wine or the good wine was that that was not fermented. New wine often referred to fresh grape juice. And extra-biblical writers such as Pliny and Plutarch and Horace all mention that the best wine was that which was destitute of spirit. You know, we cannot argue the fact that the Bible condemns drunkenness. And I don't think any of you would argue that either. I don't think the, purpose, the person that engages in social drinking would argue that point. The Bible condemns drunkenness, we know that. However, the position is often based on the idea that a clear, a clear discernment can be made or a clear distinction can be made between drunkenness and moderation. And I'm not even sure that's the case. Because when you look at it, certainly we can distinguish between the extremes, can't we? We can make a distinction between someone who's fallen down drunk and can't even stand up because they've drank so much. We can make a distinction between that person and the person who enjoys a glass of wine in the privacy of their own home. But where's the line? And who gets to determine the line? Who gets to determine when a person's drunk? Where is that line? Does the government get to decide? Does the government decide for God what is drunk and what is not? Is a blood alcohol content of 0.07 okay, but a 0.08, suddenly that is sin? Are we acceptable to God as long as it's at a, at a 0.05 or 6 or 7? Who gets to decide? Well, the, the truth is there's not a clear line, is there? There's just not. There's not a clear line in which there is absolutely no impairment, and then all of a sudden you're drunk. It doesn't happen that way. That's not how this works. 
Drunkenness comes as a result of accumulating alcohol in the body. As soon as it starts accumulating, you start the process. All that being said, if you want to drink and you're of legal age, you can do that. You have that right. You have that freedom. And you can look at me and you can say, Chris, you know, you, you just don't understand. You're a preacher. You're supposed to preach against this stuff. Folks, I lived in a home where my mother allowed me to have it in the refrigerator when I turned 21. I know about drinking. I've succumbed to the effects. Thankfully, before I became a Christian, haven't touched it since. I know a little bit about what I'm talking about here. And if you want to drink and you're of legal age, that's perfectly well within your right. But don't use the Bible to sanction it, because you can't. You cannot use the Bible to justify even social drinking. You can't. Now, if you want to do it, go ahead. I wouldn't advise it, but you have that right. But stop using the Bible to justify it, because you can't. And shouldn't that tell us something? That if we have to use the Bible to justify something, if we have to grasp at straws to justify something, shouldn't that tell us that maybe we should avoid it? I realize that I probably look like the stuffed shirt that, uh, you know, the out-of-touch preacher that doesn't know what he's talking about. But trust me, I do. You know, friends, we can talk at length about the ills of alcohol. We can debate the subject of social drinking from a medical or a scriptural perspective. We can argue the issue until all of our energy is drained, but there are some things that we can just look at from a practical standpoint, and we can see that they're just not a good idea. So here's a couple of things that I want you to consider, just from the practical standpoint, or a practical application. First of all, here are the reasons why I don't want anything to do with alcohol or drinking. Number one, it serves no purpose. It serves no good purpose. It doesn't. Now, some doctors will tell you, you know, maybe a glass of wine at night can help the kidneys or something like that. Okay, I'm, I'm not an expert in that area, so I don't know. Okay, so let's, let's just set that aside for a moment. But it serves no good benefit. Now, some people would say, well, it does because I'm a depressed person. And by drinking, it allows me to not care about my problems. Or someone would say, well, I, I think it does a lot of good for me because it removes my inhibitions. Okay, you know that's silly, right? When it comes down to it, alcohol serves no beneficial purpose. It certainly doesn't serve any beneficial purpose for us as a child of God. I can't even begin to list for you the number of people that I have come in contact with because of my profession that are incarcerated, that are in prison because of succumbing to alcohol, because of the things they did while they were under the influence of alcohol. I cannot tell you how many individuals that I have counseled with, that I've spoken with, who have lost their job, who have lost their spouse, who have lost their family, because they've been a slave to alcohol. I cannot tell you how many people I've seen abused physically by someone who was a drinker. I have seen firsthand what alcohol does to people, which is why I don't want any part of it, and I don't want you to even have a sip of it. And I may not be able to affect any adult here tonight. I may not be able to change your mind one bit, but I hope you guys will listen to me.
Because maybe I still have a shot with you. I hope you never touch the stuff. Because I have seen the worst in people because of what alcohol has done to them. And it's terrifying. It's awful. And you know what? Every one of them would have said, I'm just a social drinker. Nobody wakes up one day and says, I think I want to be a drunk. They all started just by casually drinking, and it ruined their life. Even the ones who don't think it did. Even the ones that won't come to grips with reality know that it actually ruined their life. You don't need it. Not worth it. And I can guarantee you, you can have just as much fun sitting around with your friends and drinking sweet tea, right? Secondly, I despise the consumption of alcohol because it hinders our Christian influence. And that should be the most important thing to every one of you here. It does. It hinders our Christian influence. Jesus stated that we are to be a light in the world, that we are to be salt of the earth. Paul states that we are to be ambassadors for Christ. In 2 Corinthians 2 and 15, Paul refers to Christians as a fragrant aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. It was also Paul who said we are living letters known and read by all men. Without question, Christians are to be influential and alcohol ruins that influence. With somebody somewhere, it's going to ruin your influence. I mean, let's be honest. If you found out that as your preacher, I drank on a regular basis, you'd have a problem with that. If you found out that our elders regularly drank when they met together, you'd have a problem with that. Not that they got drunk, they just simply enjoyed some wine when they got together. You'd have a problem with that. Why? Because you understand that there is a stigma associated with alcohol. And you know that that's not really something that they that's endearing to their character. You understand integrity and reputation and how that can negatively affect those things. We know that. Whether we want to admit it or not, we know that it affects us negatively and, and there's, an, there's a stigma attached to it. Here's the thing. This world is under the influence. Why do you think the funniest commercials on television are beer commercials? I mean, our world is under the influence. Why do beer companies spend over a billion dollars annually to advertise in major media outlets? Why do you think retail sales for 2012 were $62.3 billion, and in 2013, craft beer sales were up to 7.3 million barrels sold? Why do 72% of teens consume alcohol by the time they graduate? More than a third of them have done so by the 8th grade. Why? Because the world is under the influence. And we've got to be better than that. We've got to be different than that. Even if you want to say, hey, there's, there's nothing wrong with having a glass of wine in the privacy of my own home. Okay, you can say that, but... Are your children even subjected to that? Do they even see that? Because I think our children, even seeing it in the fridge is a bad thing. I think the better route is to just steer clear of it completely. Woe to the person who, who is a negative influence on their children, much less the rest of the world around them, right? The world is under the influence. We've got to show a different kind of influence. We've got to be a different kind of people than the world around us. 
Some people say, what does it hurt? I'll tell you what it hurts. It hurts your influence. It hurts your reputation as a Christian, your integrity, and your effectiveness as a servant of the Lord. But here's the deal. All that being said, here's the deal. Because some of that you can look at me and you can say, well, Chris, you know, that's your opinion that's been formed over many years of, of serving as a minister and all that. Okay, I hear you. But when all of it is said and done, when we set everything aside and just look at the practical, do you really need the Bible to tell you that this is a bad idea? Do you need Scripture to tell you it's a bad idea to drink? Because we want to do that. We want to go and we want to pick out Scripture and we want to say, well, Jesus turned water into wine. Jesus drank. And we could go and we could, we could do that and we could look at strong drink versus, you know, Yayin versus Shekhar and we could do all that. But do you really need the Bible to tell you it's a bad idea? I can tell you this, as a minister, I have never had anyone come in my office, plop down in the chair and say, Chris, let me tell you how much better my life is because I drink. My family's happier. My kids are happier. I've got a better marriage. My job is great. All because I drink alcohol. I've never had that happen. But I can tell you in just the last six months, I've had individuals in my office. I have spoken with individuals who are at their breaking point. They have hit rock bottom. They're about to lose everything because of an addiction to alcohol. That's just in the last six months. I've seen it over and over again. Which is why I don't want you to have anything to do with it. It doesn't help you. It serves no benefit. So why do it? I hope you'll consider this as well. It's not always the do not. Sometimes it's the do. And do you realize in Scripture over and over again, at least ten times in the New Testament, we see the command to be watchful and alert. Your version may say, be sober. And actually that word sober is the word nepho in the Greek. And it signifies to be free from the influence of intoxicants. I know some would say yes, but it really means watchful and alertness. Like when Paul wrote, evangelists are to be sober-minded in 2 Timothy 4 and 5. He wasn't talking about drinking there. No, he was. He absolutely was. Because anytime you see that word nepho, in the ten times it's used in the New Testament, when you see that word nepho, it still refers to being free from the influence of intoxicants. It's used in association with watchfulness to be watchful and alert, but it goes right along with being free from the influence of intoxicants. So when a person brings forth the argument, well, drunkenness is the sin, not drinking, they must at least consider what the Bible has to say about being sober. You've got to consider all the evidence. And the Bible says, be sober over and over again. Be nepho. Be free from the influence of intoxicants. It's not just don't drink. It's do be sober. It's not always the don't. It's the do as well. And for the Christian, the only way that we can serve God to the best of our ability is by being sober. Watchful and alert, free from the influence of intoxicants, right? You know, it's funny, when I was working on this series, you know, I thought to myself, the question always comes up, will this send me to hell? That's basically where we always want to land, right? Yeah, but will this send me to hell? 
And that's what we look at with social drinking. I mean, yeah, I hear you, but will it send me to hell? I think there's a better question we need to be asking. What glorifies God? That's the question we need to be asking. Because if I seek to do things that glorify God, I'm going to stay away from the things that would, quote-unquote, send me to hell, right? And when it comes to this issue or any issue like it, the question we need to ask ourselves is, what, what glorifies God? And along with that, whose kingdom is, am I advancing? Whose kingdom am I advancing? Am I seeking to advance the Lord's kingdom or the world's? And I think you know what the right answer is. As we close, I want to say that if there's anyone here that is dealing with the negative effects of alcohol, if you are struggling with this, if it is something that has overtaken your life, if you become a slave to alcohol, then please let us help you. If you don't want to come forward and answer the invitation and let us pray with you, then come find me or one of the elders afterwards and let us help you in some way. I know there's people out there struggling with it. If you're struggling with any sin tonight and you want prayers for this church, from this church family, or if you're ready to, to recommit your life to Christ, you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, whatever need you have tonight, as we say every week, don't leave here without being right with God. When you do leave here, let's go change the world. Sawyer's going to lead a song. If you have a need, come now as we stand and as we sing. Always pure and good. Would you walk with him?